Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, for a lot of music lovers, 60s soul music is Motown with its hit makers, Gladys Knight and the Pips, Smokey Robinson, The Temptations, Diana Ross and the Supremes. But in Philadelphia, another set of artists put their own twist on soul music from the OJs. To Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. And that passionate cheating song from Billy Paul. Me and Mrs. Jones. We got a thing. Philadelphia International Records celebrates its 50th anniversary this year and the iconic Philly sound that made it famous. But the legacy of Philadelphia International Records is also its influence on other music genres and artists far beyond its birth city. As part of our ongoing Summer Fun series, we're humming some of the Philadelphia International's biggest hits and asking exactly what is the sound of Philadelphia? Joining me remotely, Max Ochester, musical historian and owner of record store Brewery Town Beats in Philadelphia. Hi, Max. Hi, how's everybody doing? Great. Also with me, Jack McCarthy, Philadelphia music archivist and historian. Welcome, Jack. Happy to be here. Well, I want to start at the obvious place. Max, how did you come to know about and understand what the Philly sound was all about? What drew you to that music? It definitely began growing up in Philadelphia. I grew up in the Germantown section and really the music was on the airwaves and it was all over. But my real interest became when hip hop music, which I grew up with, started sampling the music. That's where I really started getting interested in it. Mm -hmm. And, And you found out that there was a real history there. There was definitely a history there. And it was so fun to watch the links between the two of the 70s and, you know, the early 90s. Jack, how about you? How did you come to recognize the Philly sound? And uh, how old were you? Well, I was born in the 50s, so I came of age in the 70s. And, you know, the Philly soul sound was just the soundtrack of the city. You know, you would walk down the street, it would be coming out of, you know, car radios and record stores, and you would go to dances and they would be playing it. So it was just part of my life, you know, from its origins. So, you know, people hear the term soul music and they think, you know, isn't it all the same? You know, nice, fun, soulful. But um, I don't think that everybody understands there's distinct sounds from, you know, various places. 
So the Motown sound is quite different from the Philly sound, but I don't know that everybody understands the difference. So, Jack, would you describe what makes the Philly sound? Uh, The Philly soul sound, I guess some of the primary characteristics of it are these lush, very silky string sounds, very sophisticated, multi-layered arrangements. The engineering, the audio engineering was a big part of the sound that was pioneered by Joe Tarsia, who owned uh, Sigma Sound Studios, where most of those Philly Soul hits were recorded. And then you had the impassioned vocals of some of these homegrown artists that grew up in the gospel and rhythm and blues and doo-wop traditions. And then you had this really funky, propulsive rhythm section, you know, just sort of underpinning the whole thing with a throbbing dance beat. So I, that would be the best description I could summarize. Let's take a listen to the Three Degrees, one of the groups with the Philly sound. This is When Will I See You Again? So, Max, we can hear the lush strings that's part of that song. And that's a kind of a simple song. But yet this was very much part of of how they produced the music in Philadelphia. Yeah, this was um, relatively early in the Sigma Sound studio era. Like Jack mentioned, I mean, there was so much involved in creating these recordings. And one thing I really wanted to point out was Joe Tarsia, who was the owner of Sigma, was so ahead of his time. Uh In this instance, being that um, around this time is when he got the 24-track recording machine, and that allowed him to expand and kind of multi-layer those lush strings and vocals and all kinds of the overdubs. The other thing I really wanted to point out was MFSB at this point still included the organ player Lenny Palooka, and that was um, he was only there for a short period of time, and he was on a lot of these early recordings. So MFSB was Mother, Father, Sister, Brother. That's what it stood for. And that was kind of the house band. Yeah, that was, you know, we could say the Funk Brothers who were Mm -hmm. Motown backing band. MFSB was the polite, you know, acronym was Mother, Father, Sister, Brother. Um, (laughs) Yes, there was another version of that acronym. (laughs) There was was another version. but uh, Not suitable for radio. Okay. (laughs) So you had had Earl Young and Norman Harris, Ronnie Baker. You had Bobby Eli sitting in. You had Vince Montana and the strings and horn arrangements of Vince Montana. It definitely was a magical uh, combination. Of, of musicians at that time. Well, I want to go back to what uh, some have suggested, and you two can uh, tell me if you agree with other historians, was really their first hit, the Philadelphia International Records, and it's the Soul Survivors Expressway to Your Heart. I was thinking about a shortcut I 
So this is very different from the sort of lush strings that we talked about before. But as you mentioned, they they did a wide variety of music styles as they um, created their unique sound. What do you think was made this particular piece <laughs> such a hit? It sounds very simple. Got a catchy beat, but you know. Yeah, this song actually, I believe it predates the establishment of Philadelphia International. Philadelphia International was established in 1971. And I believe this is one of the hits that Gamble and Huff had in advance of that. And that also alerted the bigger record companies that that something was happening in Philadelphia. I think this was, was this 68 or 69? I think it was 67. This had everybody. This had Gamble, Huff. It had Joe Tarsia as the, the engineer. Right. It had the whole crew, but prior to what we would call yeah. national. Yeah, I think it was like a proto-Philly soul or, you know, a neo-Philly soul that was in the early evolution of the sound. I think by the time uh, of the 70s, the sound had become a little more established and formalized. So I think this is kind of an early version of it. But all the people were there that made the Philadelphia International Sound. And you've mentioned two of the main ones, and that's Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff. And they were the songwriters and producers working with Joe Tarsia, the producer you mentioned, who was so ahead of his time. What did they bring to the table, Max? Oh, my God, everything. They brought, Leon brought, uh, he was a piano player. Uh, He wrote a lot of the music. Um, I can't remember exactly when Tommy Bell came in, because there was a third part to all of this, which was the Mighty Three. So Tommy Bell, uh, Leon Huff, and Kenny Gamble. But Kenny and Leon date back into the early 60s where they were writing partners on a previous label uh, called Arctic Records. So they had been around writing songs forever. It just happened that Soul Survivors Expressway to Your Heart was their first hit, first you know national hit between mm-hmm. New York and Philadelphia. So really they brought... They brought it all. They brought the the songwriting talent. Um, they brought the musicians in. They hired the right guys. They kind of stuck with the same musicians that they had previously and um, really ushered in this era of what we call the Philly sound now. There's a really compelling story as to how that happened. In the late 50s and early 60s, Philadelphia had this a phenomenally successful music industry. American Bandstand, the TV show that was broadcast all over the country, was broadcast from Philadelphia on a daily basis in that period. And then there was all these independent record companies like Cameo Parkway and Chancellor that were having mega hits like Chubby Checker and The Twist and Dee Dee Sharp and The Mashed Potato. But these were white-controlled enterprises They featured black acts a lot, but all the content, the productions, the songwriting, the rights, they were all owned and controlled by uh, whites. And blacks were trying to break into this very lucrative uh, music industry in Philly, but were, you know, not successful 
for the most part. There were some exceptions. So it was kind of a somewhat of a segregated business and very lucrative. And then it all sort of came crashing down in around 1964. In early 64, American Bandstand left Philadelphia for LA. Dick Clark wanted to build a media empire and realized that he needed to go to LA. And then in February, the Beatles swept America and you know it was the British invasion sweeping all the American acts off the chart. So all these acts that were very successful in Philadelphia sort of were not so successful anymore. And so there was this void in the Philadelphia music industry in the mid-60s. And into this void stepped all of these Black artists, whether they were performers or producers or songwriters or label owners, and they created this new industry, Black-owned and managed. And uh, it was from that nucleus of of individuals and they all sort of gelled together, you know, maybe 50, 60, 70 of them, and began creating their own record labels and writing and producing their own songs. And one of the first big hits to come out of all of that was at Barbara Mason's Yes, I'm Ready in 1965, which is often considered like the very first big hit in the Philly soul style. But this is well before Philly International was founded. But a Gamble and Huff and Tom Bell sort of rose to the top of this group, this core of dozens and dozens of, of musicians. And they're the ones that, again, sort of ascended to the highest peak of the industry. But it was populated by all these guys that they'd been playing with for years. And they all became the studio musicians and arrangers and producers for Philly International. So it was this very organic process that arose out of this void that was created by the collapse of the white-owned industry in the mid-60s. Kenny Gamble talked to NPR host Terry Gross in 2006 about instilling meaning into the songs that would define the Philly sound. We wanted to make a social statement, you know, and uh, I can remember Eddie saying to me, he said, we don't want to do any more messages, so we don't want to do But that, that was part of what we felt. And writing songs is like you give them part of your soul, you give them your heart. And so we did a lot of love songs, but we also, too, made a lot of songs that were were things that we saw in the community and we wanted to write about them. I'm very taken with his understanding that uh, part of their purpose was to do the fun songs, but also what he called these message songs. And one of their biggest hits as a, quote, message song was The Backstabbers by the OJs. But the message of the song was really about, you know, people that you cannot trust in your private circle. Uh, This was had a very catchy tune and the OJs were quite the performers and it, caught on. Now, 
Now, Max, that was one kind of message song, very personal. You know, watch your back, somebody's going to stab you in the back. But they also had another set of songs, which was really more communally message-oriented. And one of their uh, big hits was McFadden and Whitehead's Ain't No Stopping Us Now. There's been so many things that's held us down But now it looks like things are finally coming around I know we've got a long, long way to go And where we'll end up so, Max, what do you think about the messaging or Kenny Gamble's intent to make sure that some of these songs had messages? I think that's what, you know, the other element, and Jack touched on it earlier, this is the other element of the Philly sound, uh, besides the lush strings and the overdubbing and all that stuff. You had these very relevant messages. You have, wake up everybody, ain't no stopping us now, let's clean up the ghetto. You know, just all these songs coming out of Philly that really exuded positive messages to the community. So I think that was very interesting and the thing that caught on, really. Yeah, Kenny Gamble had a bit of an emotional issue in the mid-70s, and I think it was after that that he sort of redoubled his commitment to making the songs relevant, you know, with the lyrical content addressing issues of the day. So uh, those musical elements we all talked about were, you know, part and parcel of it. But then the the message was as as important from the mid 70s on. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, because in a 2006 interview with NPR host Terry Gross, Leon Huff spoke about how the lyrics helped define the legacy of the Philly sound. A lot of our songs was written about social issues that they still talk about today, uh, relationships that still talk about today. And one song is so popular today, I think we'll never go out of style as backstabbers. Mm -hmm. That message, it will be popular the, the next three generations. It's the lyrics, it's the, it's the, it's the lyrics, you know, the, the, uh, the stories that, that everybody relate to. And the lyrics are, are, are really quite fantastic. I think a lot of the popularity, to me, also had to do with their fabulous performers, which, again, didn't seem to draw the same kind of celebrity as some of the Motown artists. But they were big in their day. Yeah. I mean, a lot of them were homegrown Philadelphia uh, folks that Gamble and Huff and Tom Bell uh, grew up with and had been playing with for years. And um, they just had an opportunity to make music with these great songwriters and producers. And, the, and the, you know, the combined talents of everybody produced so many homegrown great artists, you know, from Teddy Pendergrass to Billy Paul and, and many, many others, and Harold Melvin and Max, I'm sure you can name 20 others. <laughs> I, I was going to actually mention Teddy Pendergrass. You know, Teddy Pendergrass came up in Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes band. You know, so he was primed for a kind of background position until he broke out on his own. He was a drummer in the band. And, he was. I didn't know Yeah, that. and then they discovered, hey, he's got a pretty good voice. <laughs> and, oh, wow. you know, the rest was history, yeah. Well, let's take a listen to Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes performing The Love I Lost. I can remember planning Building my whole world around you I can remember hoping Something went wrong. We loved each other. We just couldn't get along. Take a good look at me. 
So it has all of the elements you all have mentioned in that song. One of the things that I haven't isolated for you all to comment on, you've mentioned it, but just so people can really hear it, are the instrumental parts of these songs. As I was preparing for this piece, I noticed that in a lot of the songs with lyrics I'm familiar with, I didn't realize, Max, for example, that there was a lead up instrumental piece. So about almost every piece has about 16 to 30 seconds of just the musicians playing and then the singers come in. And I assume now, based on what I've learned about the Philadelphia International Records, that they wanted to showcase these really good musicians. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny because when you say the instrumental parts, I, I think of two different elements. You think of highlighting the musicians who were involved, MFSB, which at some point had grown to 30 plus members. It's often too overlooked that all those members were multiracial of all, you know, likes. They, 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 They were gay, straight, Asian, black, white. It was crazy. It was just this big community of musicians playing. But then the other thing when you mentioned instrumentals was something that came out of Philadelphia that was very unique was that you had a gentleman named Tom Moulton, who was a, a mixing engineer who used to take these tracks and extend them for the disco mixes. And that came out of Philadelphia with the tramps and all that stuff. And Tom is a native New Yorker, but he came down to Philly and he fell, fell in love with the Philly sound and really extended this to do these 12 minute long you know, disco mixes. So I think that's um, worth noting. Hmm. And the other uh, crucial ingredient in all this was the arrangers. Mm. And you had people like Bobby Martin, you know, who were just absolutely brilliant arrangers. So they took all these elements, you know, the rhythm and the horns and the strings and percussion and the vocals, and they just blended them into these beautiful, you know, compositions. And of course, uh, the the absolute genius of all in, in this realm is Tom Bell, who who's arranging uh, skills were just off the planet. But other people that were staff arrangers there, like uh, Bobby Martin and others, uh, were as responsible for crafting the sound of Philadelphia as, as anybody else was. Well, we've isolated a couple of the instrumental openings just so you people can really hear what we're talking about. So let's first listen to the instrumental opening to Backstabbers. There you go on that one. Here's another one that some people will recognize, and I'm going to come back to it a little bit later. But uh, here's the instrumental lead in to For the Love of Money. It's really incredible. (laughs) I just love that. You cannot just listen to that and be still. That is (laughs) out of all the songs in Philadelphia at Philly International. That is the song that first got me interested Mm. because 
it was sampled in uh, New Jack City, which was the movie in the mid to early 90s that I was aware of at the time. You know, I was in my, you know, 14, 15 years old. And I, when I heard that, I was like, oh my God, what is this music? And then I started being interested in the stuff. That song in particular is what got me interested in Philly International. <laughs> and as we'll see, that's been sampled quite a bit by many other people. But before we close out this particular section, I did want to play The Sound of Philadelphia because, Max, you mentioned you know how big it had grown and who they were. And they were very much part of... They called it TSOP, which is another acronym for The Sound of Philadelphia. And one of their most well-known pieces of music then became the theme song to a different version of American Bandstand. American Bandstand was white, back to what you said, Jack, about that history. And then some very smart people made another version of what was essentially American Bandstand and called it Soul Train. And so they turned to The Sound of Philadelphia, Mother, Father, Sister, Brother, to used their music as a theme song. All that beautiful harmonizing and uh, and all those musicians at top form. It's beautiful. It really is. Yeah, that's the quintessential Philly soul sound, you know, with the lush, silky strings and the propulsive rhythm and the punctuating brass. It's, a, it's got all the classic elements of a Philly soul classic. That's great. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and this is a special full hour of our Summer Fun series. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me remotely are Max Ochester, owner of Brewery Town Beats, and Jack McCarthy, a Philadelphia music archivist. We're discussing the 50th anniversary of the Philly Sound, created by Philadelphia International Records, part of our Summer Fun series. This music is so catchy. So it's easy to see, as you mentioned, Max, how later on people started sampling it. And a sample that is was in full sight for a lot of people in um, fairly recently that I think people would recognize. We played a little bit of it before. It was a very popular song for the love of money, again by the OJs. And if some of my listeners are going, I've heard that before. Now, where have I heard that? Well, you heard it as the theme song for former President Trump's former show, The Apprentice. So here's the version of For the Love of Money used for the theme song of The Apprentice. Come on, that be no, be, me, bring, almighty, side, I, 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 I
So I thought this is a very clever edited version of the song, which I encourage people to hear the whole song so you can see what they edited out. What a lot of people didn't understand, YouTube will probably find amusing, is that the song uh, is not a tribute. It is a critique of money and how dangerous it can be if used improperly. And this was the theme song of The Apprentice. So I I guess that's a message song, too. (laughs) What do you say, Jack? (laughs) Uh, Well, I don't know that the producers of The Apprentice quite caught the spirit of the lyrics. And I think they (laughs) misconstrued the theme behind the song. But, yeah, it's definitely a a critique of the mercenary commercial world. And um, I think in the TV show, I think it may be interpreted as celebrating that world (laughs) but that's not what the song was originally about (laughs) max were you surprised when you heard this as a theme of uh, the apprentice show you know what philly international has been sampled so many times by so many great groups that i grew up with that uh it only made sense to see uh, um it popularized in this way you know this was just another way to show and highlight how much Philadelphia music really meant to the world. Um, you know, in, in my opinion, it's unfortunate that it was for that show and it was definitely <laughs> taken out of context, but um, uh, it really helped ingrain that in the younger generation's mind. I don't even know how many people think or know that that song is from Philadelphia. So. <laughs> And that's my point as part of this conversation. I think, uh, again, a lot of people would be able to identify Motown songs and 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 say that's a Motown song. I know where that came from. But so much of the product that came out of Philadelphia for, you know, sort of a, a mass consumption doesn't feel as though it's as familiar. And why do you think that is? Why do you think like the Philly sound when clearly we've been playing these really, you know, um, grabby rhythms and, and good lyrics they appeal to many, many people, but it didn't ever rise from just my looking at it. You all tell me differently. Rise to the level of um, of, of Motown. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you two sides of it, and my ego side says that people just don't know how good this is. You know, they just really never after Motown they really were left uh, kind of wondering what's next. And now with the advent of the internet in the past 20 years, it's become much more available to more people. My humble you know, side is that Motown was really good. Barry Gordy was really amazing. He was an amazing person, amazing promoter of his music, and the talent coming out of Detroit was incredible. So not that we were secondary to Motown. However, I believe a lot of what Philly tried to do, even from the earlier stuff in uh, the Arctic Records and Barbara Mason and all that stuff, we really aspired to be what Motown was. And... Um, not again, not that we're second class to that, but Motown was just so good at what they did. Uh, my take on it is that Motown is so unique and so overwhelming in its presence in American music history that it, it's almost like you can't compare other cities and styles with it. It's such a presence in American culture. Each major city that like had large black populations and and rich musical traditions had its own soul style and sound usually associated with a uh, a recording studio or a record company so you had motown in detroit you had Stax in memphis you had atlantic in new york and muscle shoals in alabama and philly actually was the last great 
soul label because after that the soul style sort of faded out as new styles you know like rap and, and funk uh, sort of took over uh but each of these cities had its own unique you know really incredible sound and philadelphia is right up there with all of them it may not be as famous as motown but it's pretty close and it takes its place among all the great soul cities of the united states Hmm. Yeah, you, you almost had these waves. You had this wave of Motown in the late 60s into the very early 70s. And then Philadelphia actually kind of took over at some point up until, uh, you know, disco music. And disco was, you know, like I mentioned earlier, birthed out of Philadelphia's soul music. So you had this wave of, of stuff of going from region to region. Hmm. Well, coming up, what do popular musicians Elton John, Daft Punk, Dusty Springfield and the rapper Nods have in common. All of them are fans of the Philly sound and incorporated some of the signature elements in their music. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Welcome back. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. As part of our Summer Fun Series, we're taking the full hour to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Philadelphia International and the Philly Sound. You'll notice that's not from Philadelphia International. It's Elton John, his Philadelphia freedom, because he was a fan of the Philly Sound and was influenced by it in some of his music, including the song Philadelphia Freedom. I am back now with my guest, Max Ochester, musical historian and owner of the record store Brewery Town Beats in Philadelphia, and Jack McCarthy, Philadelphia music archivist and historian. So, you guys, I was stunned. Now, I know, Max, this was how you got introduced to the Philly Sound was through sampling and, and, and listening to some of the influences and other music genres of Philadelphia International Records. But I have to say I was stunned to know Elton John and all these other people listened and were influenced. What do you think that's about? So I'll let you start, Max. You got to run down the list. It's the Jacksons. Uh, David Bowie came to Philadelphia to get the sound. You know, like you said, Elton John. I mean, they just, it was the happening thing. I think they wanted that lush sound, that that full orchestration, that, that arrangement, the songwriting talents that happened here. You know, everybody was kind of focusing at that point on what Philadelphia was producing. Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff had over 175 gold records, you know, throughout their career. I mean, they obviously had some sort of uh, chemistry and, and thing that worked. And I think these other musicians were kind of looking for that energy and that that feel. So that's why they came here. And what would you say, Jack? Well, I, you know, it's what's a, a particularly interesting to me is is the the widely different genres 
of music or artists that were attracted to the Philly soul sound, like David Bowie, uh, everybody at the time, he was this androgynous, you know, glam rock guy, uh, the spiders from Mars, Ziggy Stardust, you know, and, but he was listening to Philly soul at that time, you know, he's playing sold out concerts at, in rock settings. And then he's writing and recording these songs at Sigma Sound Studios drenched in the Philly soul style. So not just soul artists that were coming to capture the Philly sound, but artists from all these different genres. And it, it, I think, you know, as Max said, it's it's something about that sound, the, the combination of the different instruments and the production and the soul vocals, the impassioned vocals. Uh, it just drew people from all these different musical styles and genres. Well, people are going to be surprised when they hear. Let's listen to Daryl Hall and John Oates' Sarah Smile, influenced by the Philly sound. When I feel cold, you warm me. And when I feel I can't go on, you come and hold me. It's you and me forever. I never would have put that together, nor would I ever have put Dusty Springfield and Philadelphia sound in the same <laughs> sentence. And yet she came to Philadelphia to work with Leon Huff and Kenny Gamble. And the song was A Brand New Me, which had all of the influences that these two super producers brought to it. So let's take a listen. I was the same old me with the same. Just by holding my hand Now I look in the mirror And see Brand new girl I got a Brand new wall I, I'm just blown away, I have to say. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there's a difference there, like Dusty Springfield, of course, coming from England to capture that sound. But Hall and Oates are Philly boys. They're from the suburbs of Philadelphia, but they met at Temple University in North Philadelphia, like in sort of the epicenter of, of Philly soul. And they were reared and nurtured in the Philly soul tradition. So that music, and they will tell you that every opportunity they get, they tell interviewers that, you know, they were, this was their formative music. And so for them, it wasn't a matter of coming here to capture that sound it was you know they were brought up in it mm. and daryl hall i gotta mention was in a soul group in the mid 60s called the Temptones, oh, wow. which was a nod to the temptations and he was performing live at the philadelphia's apollo which is the historic uptown theater in philadelphia where he won a talent show with his group and he got a record deal out of that so he recorded two singles off of this, uh, winning this talent show at the Uptown Theater. And uh, the story goes, and I can't verify this necessarily, but he was, they were booed when they got on stage for being a white band at the Uptown Theater until they sang their regional hit by the Temptones. So huh. I don't know. Jack, if you have any insight on that, but yeah. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much accurate. I've heard that story too I, about being booed. I don't know how 
true it is, but that they were on this label called Arctic, which was, remember I said earlier that uh, these Philadelphia producers and, and engineers and, and uh, songwriters were creating their own record labels, and uh, that Arctic was owned by this very popular black DJ in Philadelphia, Jimmy Bishop, and all the acts on there, this is the mid-60s, were black acts, including Kenny Gamble and his group, the Romeos, and a lot of the people that became stalwarts of the Philly soul sound but the temp tones were a white like i think they were the only white act on the label but they were as i said earlier they were drenched in this philly soul sound so they mm. fit right in well it's a good reminder 50 years from the time that you know some of these hits were being created and all this music was being made about the uniqueness of the philly sound and i thought we should listen to tom bell that's the the third guy in the kenny gamble leon huff and then he's a songwriter producer tom bell um who came to join them and was very instrumental in many of the songs that are quite popular he talked to Terry Gross of NPR in 2006, and he made an analogy describing the uniqueness of the Philly sound. What comes to mind is um, cheesesteaks. <laughs> That's cheating. <laughs> and when I say cheesesteaks, I mean that there's only one place in the world that you can get a fantastic cheesesteak, and that's Philadelphia. And I don't care where you go. You can buy the, the, the mom-and-pop store in the corner, or you can buy Pat's. Or you can go to any of the large places. They're all great cheesesteaks. They need someone that's a little different, but you can't beat a you, you can't beat a Philadelphia steak. Mm, I love that analogy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know Tom Bell was the only one of of, of the three Gamble, Huff, and Bell uh, who was classically tra or formally trained. You know the others were self taught, mm. but he was grounded in the classics, and so and it shows up in his brilliant you know arrangements and songwriting. I was just going to play on that analogy. They do say that, you know, in Philadelphia, it's the water that makes the bread, meaning what you think of as the good cheesesteak is because the bread is so good. And I think that's what he's um, referring to. It's just being in the city and and uh, really kind of being ingrained in the society of Philadelphia at that time is what made that music so good. So, Well, as I was preparing for this conversation with you all, I went looking for those kinds of sampling that I, Max, that you had referred to and just found all kinds of examples. So I'm going to play a few so people can hear. The first part will be from the song, which I'll mention, and then the second part will be sampled by a new artist. So we've heard The Sound of Philadelphia, TSOP, with Mother, Father, Brother, Sister, and the Soul Train theme song. But here's The Sound of Philadelphia by Mother, Father, Sister, Brother, as I said, followed by Grand Steppen's Duck Sauce. So here's another one. This is Jerry Butler. He's a soul singer. The history is that his solo career was reborn when he came to Philly and started working with Gamble and Huff. And then this Dan Dilemma Thomas, a producer, DJ, and television music composer, said this was one of his favorites, this sampling, favorite sampling. He said he loved the feel and colors of the song and never got tired of uh, listening to it. So this is Jerry Butler's No Money Down, sampled by the rapper The Game in Dreams. And I brought you all my dreams cause I love you. Uh, 
And I thought they'd guarantee that you'd always be in love. I woke up out that coma 2001. About the same time Dre dropped 2001. Three years later, the album is done. Aftermath presents. So that's one of those uh, rappers that Max was intrigued by as they were sampling. Here's another good sample. The Delphonics, Walk Right Up to the Sun, was sampled by Nas featuring Lauren Hills on If I Rule the World. And finally, this is Edwin Birdsong's Cola Bottle Baby, sampled by Daft Punk, Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger. Forgot to add, Kanye West Stronger was at the end of that, so it went Birdsong, Daft Punk, Kanye West. All right, you two. Max, I'll let you start because this is where you got excited about the Philly sound was the sampling. Yeah, this is, um, you know, so I grew up in, in the 80s and 90s, and sampling was the thing. This is what hip-hop was doing. And I got to say, I've been fighting for this for a long time. This music, even as obscure as it is today, would be even more obscure without hip-hop artists bringing it back around, giving it a refreshed new vibe, and getting it out to a newer generation. So I'm all for it. I love it. I love the fact that uh, younger musicians, Nas and, and everybody else is, you know, they're looking back to what their parents listened to and what their grandparents listened to. And they're pulling and plucking this obscure music out of the past and re-envisioning it for the future. And I'm absolutely in love with it. I, I think it's awesome. I was pretty excited listening to the, the, the transition. I was like, wow, look at this. I was unaware of this. So, Jack, you weren't drawn by the music because of the, the sampling. But what do you think about it? Yeah, well, I love it. I mean, it's it's the constant reinvention of uh, musical elements that's at the core of all creative musical expression, you know, drawing from the past and, and the technology of the present. So, you know, in terms of how it was done specifically with Philly soul uh, music, I'm going to defer to Max because he's like, from the hip hop generation, and I'm not, <laughs> and so uh, so it's not you know uh, music that I was uh, sort of reared on, uh, like I was on, in the original soul hits. But I love the fact that artists are continually drawing on this music to fuel their creative process. Were you surprised to see these? This is just a small sample of the sampling. Were you surprised? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm always surprised. And I, you know, this is not my music, so I don't listen to it a lot. Mm -hmm. But when I hear about it, I'm like, oh, my God, they use that. And um, so, yeah, I'm continually uh, surprised and pleased to when I come across these examples like that. 
If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and this is a special full hour of the Summer Fun series. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me remotely are Max Ochester, owner of Brewery Town Beats, and Jack McCarthy, a Philadelphia music archivist. And we're discussing the 50th anniversary of the Philly Sound, created by Philadelphia International Records. So let me just mention the fact that there are two special recordings coming out in conjunction with the celebration of the 50th anniversary. One is Legacy Recordings, the Catalog Division of Sony Music Entertainment. Two vinyl compilations, which I thought is interesting. One's called The Best of Philadelphia International Records. It's 12 tracks featuring some of the artists that we have listened to on this show. Ain't No Stopping Us Now, uh, The OJs, Me and Mrs. Jones, as we've heard, The Three Degrees, When Will I See You Again, and others. And then the other one is something called Golden Gate Groove, The Sound of Philadelphia Live 1973. And I guess this features, according to them, the first and only time the stars of Philadelphia International Records, including Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, the OJs, the Three Degrees, and Billy Paul, performed in concert with the label's house band, as we've mentioned, MFSB, at a concert that took place in San Francisco in 1973. So that's pretty interesting. Have you all listened to either of these compilations? I've heard of the first one. The 2LP box set that came out is something that the Philly International and particularly the Gamble family has been working on for a long time. The master rights and the publishing rights are owned by different people. So I know there's been a lot of working to try to get that stuff out. Um, The second one I do not know about, and I'm very excited to hear it. It's very typical of Philadelphia to have a concert done in San Francisco (laughs) (laughs) and not not in Philadelphia where it should be. But we are working. I know Jack is part of the effort. I'm part of the effort. There's a lot of other people involved working to get this music recognized um, and brought back to Philadelphia in what you know we would think would make sense Um, it doesn't surprise me that this stuff is on vinyl I mean these days vinyl is outselling CDs relatively speaking it's amazing that they're finding these old recordings and they're remastering and and hopefully they're doing it justice by finding the original tapes and kind of you know, doing doing the music justice by putting it back out. I think that's incredible. Well, that's going to go a long way to, you know, re- renewing interest in the label and the artists and all of that. I wonder what you all are hearing about the 50th anniversary or the recognition of the 50th anniversary doing the same thing. Is there more interest? Are people talking about it more? I know you are Philly people, but, you know, outside of your your own space, do you have a sense that this is really opening it up again for people to listen to and think about? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know what's happening in the rest of the country, but I know there's a lot of plans afoot in Philadelphia celebrations and concerts and uh, other activities that's really going to focus on this music. I think a lot of that's going to happen in the fall. But yeah, there's a lot of activities in the works and some of them are not completely formulated yet, but I know that they're in the planning stage. Has it drawn more attention, uh, Max? Yeah, for sure. I think it's become much more kind of on people's radar at this point. I do know that Again, like Jack said, there's some stuff coming up in the fall. And I also know that Philly International itself, as an entity, has launched a new social media campaign. I know from being in communication with Philly International, particularly the Gamble family, that the celebration is not only throughout 2021, but into 2022. 
and uh, there's going to be a lot of stuff that they are working on, uh, particularly vinyl releases. And then there is an organization in Philadelphia trying to organize a large um, showing and concert in Philadelphia. So. I, again, as I've mentioned, have been interested in the various takes on the Philly sound by people you wouldn't think, you know, would would know about it. But it turns out Black Thought, who is the lead MC of The Roots, grew up in Philadelphia. All The Roots did. Yeah, okay. All right. So he had some uh, interesting thoughts about the Philly sound growing up in Philadelphia. When I was growing up, you know, I wasn't really aware that it was the sound of Philadelphia per se, as much as I was aware uh, that it was kind of just, you know, the sound of grown people. It was just grown people music, (laughs) you know what I mean, to me. It was the music that they listening to in the other room that you might get to catch if grandpa was driving you home on a late Uh night, you know, but... uh, Yeah, um, as as I got older and became kind of more aware of, uh, you know, production and and who's putting the music out, and uh, I realized, wow, these guys are from Philly, and that artist from Philly, too, and they recorded this song where, you know. I love that, grown folks music. So uh, since you're talking to grown folks on this show, if they are new to the Philadelphia sound, the Philly sound and Philadelphia International Records, where would you tell them to start to begin to appreciate the talent that produced other talent during this period of time? It, it, it almost feels like self-promotion because I've, I, you know, I'm working on doing projects where I'm reissuing stuff from the 70s. I'm also producing bands to try to kind of fill the void of what the Philly International sound, you know, left. So... Yeah, I would start in the early 70s, uh, research Sigma Sound Studios, research Joe Tarsia, research Kenny Gamble, Leon Huff, and Tommy Bell, the Mighty Three, MFSB. They backed everything, so you should go search out their, I think they had four albums just as MFSB, but they also backed all the other stuff that came out from uh, Billy Paul to the OJs to everybody else. So definitely, you know, I would say 1971 is your starting point and and try to research the music from that time period. Yeah, for me, I mean, the the 70s is the high watermark, you know, everybody recognizes for Philly International. I particularly love the period just prior to that from like the mid 60s through the late 60s um, when, you know, Tom Bell was working with groups like um, the stylistics and the Delphonics and, you know, a bit later the spinners and these groups that are musicians that eventually form the core of Philly International were producing songs like Barbara Mason's Yes, I'm Ready. And so I love that pre-Philly International sound. It's Philly soul in its formative stages. And it's, uh, you know, I, I mean, I danced to Lala Means I Love You, you know, at, <laughs> in, in high school. So it has like a special, you know, uh, I have a special affection mm-hmm. for it. But also it's just great music, uh, regardless of how old you are, you know. Well, I think this conversation has established that 50 years later it held up. So here's a question for both of you. Is there a Philadelphia sound, a Philly sound of today? you got to think about this. We talked about the roots earlier and Black Thought chimed in. You had the neo-soul movement from Philadelphia. You had Jill Scott. You had Jaguar Wright. You had Bilal. You had Musique, Soul Child. You had all those, the neo-soul movement. 
The interesting thing about all those people, even Erica Badu came in and recorded. They still recorded at Sigma Sound Studios in the early 90s. They were still recording by Joe Tarsia's son. Mike Tarsia was, was running the studio at that point. And you had, uh, you know, the Roots did their first four records there. And so you had that whole movement in the 90s. And then to this day, there are still a lot of gospel musicians coming out of Philadelphia, which is the sound is based in the gospel music. And there are bands that, you know, again, I'm self-promoting, but there's a band called York Street Hustle that I'm working with that is a 10-piece funk band that we're doing Philly sound music. The only thing we're lacking at this point is a well-put-together uh, string section because they're mighty expensive these days. <laughs> um, <laughs> But besides that, you know, the, the idea and, the, um, you know, the feeling of the Philly soul music is still there. So I, I think there's a lot to look forward to coming out of Philadelphia. In, in one sense, it's like a continuum. You know, I, I mean, I talked about the, the Philly pop music industry in the late 50s, and then uh, that had its day. And then uh, Philly International had its day in the in the 70s and then you know the the artists that max referred to like jill scott and the roots you know the neo soul movement in the in the 90s and early 2000s and and in in one sense it is just a continuum even though that you can divide it into these little discrete chunks but it's ever evolving and continuing the legacy continues 50 yes. years later right <laughs> yes all right well this has been a delightful conversation with uh, the two of you I thank you so much for joining me. Boy, I didn't know anything. I thought I knew a little something about the Philly sound when I started. I didn't know it was good, that which I knew about. And now I know it's really, really good because you told me. <laughs> so thank you both. My pleasure. Yes, thank you so much. This was awesome. Max Ochester is a musical historian and the owner of Brewery Town Beats in Philadelphia. And Jack McCarthy is Philadelphia archivist and historian who specializes in music. That's it for this week's special hour of our summer fun series. We're on the web at wgbh.org news, under the radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubley and Angela Yang, and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our intern is Iptisam El-Maliki. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.